All right, everybody, welcome back to this edition of the Morning Report podcast on the Neurology Exam Prep podcast from the Yale School of Medicine. I'm Dr. Jeff Dewey. I'm an assistant professor of neurology with a specialty in neuromuscular medicine and one of the associate program directors. Today, we're joined by uh, the Grand Poobah himself, Dr. Jeremy Moeller, our program director, uh, who is a, an associate professor of neurology and an epileptologist. And we have our uh, perennial classic residents, uh, Dr. Chris Trainer, who's a PGY4, and Dr. Lindsay McAlpine, who's a PGY3 in our program. So Chris, I believe you have the case today. I'll let you and Dr. Moeller take it away. Yeah, so I have a 54-year-old woman who came in for evaluation of altered mental status. All right, so tell, give us a little more information. You've got to give me a little more to get, uh, go by than yeah. just altered mental status here. All right, so she was 54. Like I said, she had actually been seen twice previously in the hospital for episodes of unresponsiveness that were thought to be syncopal in nature. During those prior episodes, she basically suddenly lost consciousness for a few seconds and then went back to baseline within just a few seconds. Both happened in the same situation, which was during mealtime. Her husband basically noticed that they were eating. She would have a sudden arrest of behavior and then about three to four seconds after that, she would kind of lose tone, fall to the floor, eyes closed, and then for about five to 10 seconds be out and then wake up and be totally back to normal after about five to 10 seconds. So basically she came to us from an outside hospital. She ended up in a different state, far away from where she was supposed to be going with no idea how she got there. And when you talk about state, you're not talking about state of arousal, but perhaps, uh, but rather sort of the geopolitical uh, territory. Yes, a different one of the United States. <laughs> Very good. All right, I'm in a punchy mood today. All right, so you're talking about three episodes of transient alteration in consciousness. And we've talked before about how consciousness is sometimes defined as a combination of alertness and awareness. And it sounds like with the first two episodes, there was both loss of alertness and awareness. With the third episode, it's harder to know, right? Somebody might need to be alert in order to cross interstate boundaries uh, and may have a loss of awareness uh, as a result of that. So uh, Lindsay, what are some questions you might wanna know that might help parse out why this person is having recurrent episodes of altered awareness and possibly in some cases altered alertness? Uh, yeah, so I, I would start out with her past medical history. Yeah, so she's very healthy. She just has a history of hyperlipidemia for which she was managing it on diet alone, so no, not even on any medications. And then in her mind, did she link these three episodes together? No, actually. Uh, her family was the one that mentioned the prior episodes to us when she was being evaluated as a consult for this bigger episode uh, where she ended up across state lines. And the bigger episode, did anybody witness it? Yeah, so the context of the bigger episode is that the daughter noticed, so she lives with her daughter, who's in her 20s, and the daughter noted that she felt like her mom was a little off when she said she was going to work, because she said, I can't find my, 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 and then stuttered on the word my for several seconds, which she said is something that her mother never would do. And she realized that her mom couldn't find her keys when she was kind of like making some sort of gesture. And then she helped her mom find the keys, thought, okay, that was a little weird, but didn't really think too much of it. Let her mom get in the car and drive to work. And several hours later, received a call from work and said, we don't know where she is. She's not here. She didn't arrive. And then 
She called the police who started searching for her. And then lo and behold, a couple hours later, was found in a hospital in a different state. And the context of her being found was that she was found at the side of the road in her car, just kind of looking straight ahead, but stopped on the side of the highway because her car had run out of gas. And the policeman that found her reported that nothing out of the ordinary happened other than she couldn't really explain what had happened. So he was like, what's going on? And she was like, I don't know. When he asked, why are you here? She's like, I don't know. So she just kept saying, like, I don't know. But otherwise was physically acting normally and was able to tell him her name, but just didn't have any context to what had happened in the episode. And by the time that you saw her, was she able to give a history? No, she was at her baseline when we saw her, but she had no recollection or context for that episode. So she remembers getting ready for work and then basically remembers getting in the car to go to work and then just doesn't really Mm -hmm. understand what happened that led her to come across state lines. Was her blood pressure high? At arrival to the ED, no. It was actually, if anything, a little low. It was 95 over 60. Lindsay, why do you ask about her blood pressure? For blood pressure, I would, I'd be worried, well, one, if it's very high, she could be having a stroke or press, or it might make me think of transient global amnesia, because that can be a blood pressure related to blood pressure as well. Um, So that can be a good litmus test of where we're at with the patient. Yeah, I mean, what what she's describing here is a fairly prolonged episode of amnesia, right? The inability to generate new memories uh, based on the fact that there's a gap uh, of several hours in her experience. And then there are a few other features, right? She clearly had some transient inability to communicate clearly before she left for work, uh, which resolved. And then she had some inability, it's hard to uh, clarify, but some inability to communicate with the police officer when she was found. But, But in the middle of that, there's this gap in memory. And I'd like to dig into the localization of memory and the localization of of why you might have a gap in that memory and and you know that i love to ask you about the four elements in the generation of memory so lindsay i'm going to put you on the spot again you're smiling here we're, we're on zoom so uh can you remember these and i can help you the first one is related to attention and that is registration so when i say something to you just like i have right now the first thing is that you have to be paying attention to me, hopefully you are, and you're gonna say, got it. Okay, registration. And that is really your attention or your working memory. And then from there, there's a couple of steps to get it sort of deep in there so you can bring it out later. And do you know what those steps are? I know encoding and recall as well. Perfect, perfect. So those are the other two big steps, right? So there's encoding, and then later on there's retrieval. And then the fourth is really consolidation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going I'm to wave my hands a little bit, but in terms of the neuroanatomical components of this, attention and concentration, so the registration component is going to be working memory. That may include mesial temporal structures, but also is going to include uh, frontal sub- subcortical circuits so that somebody's sort of alert and attentive and, and will also require the ascending reticular activating system. You know, somebody needs to be awake uh, for that to happen. And then encoding is probably one that actually has the sort of clearest neuroanatomical substrate. So what anatomically is important for encoding of memory? The hippocampi. 
Yeah, exactly. So the medial temporal structures, and if it's something you're telling, you know, I'm telling you, it's going to be the dominant uh, mesial temporal structures. And then other elements of the circuit uh, of papes, uh, including uh, the fornices, including the anterior nucleus of the thalamus, and including the projections to the cortex. And then uh, retrieval involves a lot of the same circuits, but also elements of the basal, the basal frontal circuits as well. Consolidation is much more diffuse, but the process of encoding takes about five minutes. Retrieval sort of happens after that, which is why we get the delay, you know, why we, we wait several minutes to ask somebody re to retrieve. And consolidation can take days to weeks. So how, uh, the final thing I would say, and we're not going to be able to do it here, but how can you tell on physical exam the difference between a problem with encoding and a problem with retrieval? Patient will be able to tell you the five objects that you ask them to remember. They'll be able to repeat it back to you, but then they won't be able to give it back to you in five minutes or 10 minutes. Yeah. So, so if somebody had a problem with encoding, obviously they're not going to be able to give you a delayed recall. If somebody has a retrieval problem, they may still have difficulty, but you may be able to help them. And how might you be able to help them? Category cues. Yeah, so cues. So cues are a way that you can tell if the problem is related to encoding versus retrieval. Mm. And if it's a retrieval problem, it's less clearly localized to mesial temporal structures uh, and may have, again, some, some of those uh, frontal components as well. So getting back to our patient, she had transient dysfunction of memory encoding, almost certainly. She was awake and alert. She was attentive to her daughter. She was able to do functions that were enough to drive a car. Uh, maybe there were some limitations on her attentiveness, but not a lot. Uh, but she was not able to encode these memories, and that's why she has no memory of it afterward. And so really, you can nail down the fact that she was awake and alert. She was able to do complex things. She didn't encode. So there was transient dysfunction of mesial temporal structures, probably left at least, and maybe right too, if there, although it's harder to sort out visual-spatial memory problems. And then we can get to localization, or to uh, etiology. So you mentioned one main etiology that could give you transient dysfunction of mesial temporal structures over several hours. There's also seizures. Right, yeah, so you could have temporal lobe onset seizures, mesial temporal onset seizures. It'd be unusual, right, if somebody had a left mesial temporal onset seizure that went on long enough and they were still able to do things like uh, drive a car. So one would wonder whether it was a postictal phenomenon. You know, somebody was having briefer mesial temporal onset seizures, and then afterward had ongoing suppression of activity in the mesial temporal structures to the point where they have postictal amnesia. It's a little unusual, I must say, not the commonest thing, but could be possible. Does she have any risk factors for seizures? Yeah, so none of the common seizure risk factors, so no prior encephalitis or meningitis, no head trauma in her life, no birth defects, was born normal at term as far as she can remember, didn't have any issues uh, in terms of learning disabilities, neurologic problems as a child. She was diagnosed with ADHD around the age of 12, for which she briefly took the uh, stimulants. And the reason for the diagnosis was that she would have episodes where she felt like she couldn't pay attention, but they were brief, lasting only seconds. She was taken to a neurologist at that time because there was a concern for seizures, but the neurologist told her family they did not think she had seizures and thought it was either behavioral or ADHD, and they seemed to get better on the stimulant, but actually subsided around the age of 14 and then didn't happen again. Remind me, how old did you say she was, Chris? She's 54. 
What are some of the commonest causes of seizures uh, that start in uh, the fifth, sixth, seventh decades of life? So typically related to a lesion, so stroke, uh, mass, or otherwise, unlikely to be a primary epilepsy disorder. That history makes me think of juvenile absence epilepsy, um, but it would be so unusual to go for so long without any symptoms. Unusual, but it can happen. So there, uh, there are rare cases of new onset absence epilepsy, especially absence status epilepticus uh, that can happen later in life. Uh, and sometimes there's a triggering factor for that. And uh, the interesting thing about absence status epilepticus is it's often sort of a, a state of diminished responsiveness, but people are still able to function to some extent. And and all of us that have an interest in epilepsy have stories of patients who have a prolonged absence status epilepticus that has mis been misinterpreted as a psychiatric phenomenon. The other thing I would put on this uh, woman's differential diagnosis, obviously, is a dissociative fugue. Whenever you hear the story of somebody ending up in a different part of the country, uh, especially if there are behavioral components to that, one of the things you wonder about is a primary psychiatric thing like a dissociative fugue. That's a very rare psychiatric phenomenon and usually associated with some severe antecedent psychological trauma, although not always. Did she have such an antecedent psychological trauma, Chris? No, she was actually psychologically well. The family had no concerns, including for any behavioral changes, even any memory changes that preceded this type of event. She was otherwise normal, other than, like I said, those two episodes of uh, brief loss of consciousness that had happened over the last six months. What did you find on her exam? So her exam, her vital signs were all within normal limits other than the slightly low blood pressure that I mentioned, the 95 over 60. And her mental status exam was completely intact, including uh, registration and delayed recall. She had three out of three words at five minutes. Speech was fluent and appropriate. Comprehension was intact. Naming repetition was also intact. Cranial nerves were all intact other than she had some mild left nasal labial fold flattening, but the family felt that that was chronic and looking at her driver's license, it also appeared to have been present in previous pictures. Motor exam was five out of five with normal bulk and tone. Sensory exam was intact. Coordination was intact. Reflexes were two plus and symmetric with downgoing toes. And she was able to walk around the emergency room without any difficulties at the time that she was evaluated by us. All right, Lindsay, does that refine our differential diagnosis? So just to summarize, we're thinking about transient global amnesia, a postictal state, a psych psychiatric dissociative fugue, acute stroke, press. Uh, those were some of the things that you had on your list. Uh, any thoughts on the basis of that exam? So it's a normal exam, which is reassuring. That makes stroke lower on the differential, and it doesn't really change my thoughts about TGA or postictal state because it probably already passed and it doesn't say it didn't happen. It narrows it a little bit, but it doesn't really tell me what, what's going on. So what additional investigations would you like to do? And we could start with laboratory tests and, and go from there. Sure, so I would, I would get basic labs. I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, that a prolactin would be helpful in this situation since we don't have a baseline. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, Dr. Hirsch talked about this in one of the other podcasts, but uh, prolactin peaks, and you really want to see it at three times baseline level uh, within 20 to 30 minutes after the event, and then rapidly drops off after that. So after an hour, it's, it's next to useless. You can use, for convulsive seizures, you can use lactate acutely, but again, that drops off. And then CK, but that typically doesn't peak until 12 to 24 hours later. And again, usually more for convulsive events than, than otherwise. So th that right. lab 
work is, is not going to help. I agree when, when you allude to basic lab work, just to make sure that there's no provoking factor, fluid or electrolyte disturbance, acute infection or, or uh, disorder of glycemic control would be probably some of the biggest ones that you want to look for. Right? Toxicology as well. So urine tox. What about uh, diagnostic tests? I would say she, she bought herself an EEG and an MRI with contrast. All right. Those are reasonable choices. Chris, uh, can you tell us if you did those tests and if so, what the results were? Yeah. So we did do basic laboratory studies. Her lactate was normal. Uh, electrolytes were all within normal limits. Kidney functions were normal. Her LFTs were slightly elevated, uh, 45 and 43 for her ALT and AST. And she was slightly anemic with a hemoglobin of 11.5, but the rest of her basic labs, including urine analysis and urine toxicology, as well as serum toxicology, were all negative. She had been previously admitted, like I said, because of these two episodes where she suddenly lost consciousness, but was admitted to the medical service and was worked up as a syncopal episode, but did have a routine EEG during one of her prior episodes, which was normal. So given the fact that she had a prior routine EEG that was normal and the fact that it was later on in the day, we decided to actually just do an overnight EEG just for completeness sake. Normally, obviously, we wouldn't necessarily do a continuous study, but I think given that she was there and she'd been having these episodes or had now three distinct episodes of weird changes in consciousness, we just decided to do an overnight EEG and then she did get an MRI uh, the next morning. Uh, her MRI was completely normal, so there was no flare hyperintensity in either mesial temporal lobes. There was no DWI changes. Um, she had a couple of small spots of uh, periventricular white matter disease, but really nothing of, of note. But her EEG was interesting in the sense that uh, during sleep, she had sleep-activated uh, generalized spike and wave bursts that lasted anywhere from one to six seconds and were at four to six hertz in frequency. She had no, none of these discharges while she was awake. They were only sleep-induced, and they did catch both normal stage one and stage two sleep with normal uh, architecture, and her uh, wake posterior dominant rhythm was 10 hertz and well-formed with uh, good voltage. Mm. Lindsay. So what do you think about that particular EEG finding? So just to summarize, sleep, sleep activated, bifrontal maximal, generalized spike wave discharges at four to six hertz. So to me, that's pretty pathognomonic for absence. Yeah, and sort of the, the quote unquote fast spike in wave. So a little faster than your typical three hertz spike in wave you might see more often in a juvenile absence uh, epilepsy, uh, which you had alluded to earlier, uh, rather than your classic uh, childhood absence epilepsy. And juvenile absence epilepsy is something that you sometimes often don't grow out of uh, mm -hmm. and can reemerge with some triggering factor later in life. And the way I've thought about this, we all have stories of patients with first lifetime recognized seizure in their 50s. Uh, you know, they're rare, but it happens with, with generalized epilepsy syndromes. And I suppose it's because there is a range of severity and a range of threshold for seizures. And maybe that that threshold is actually still pretty high for some people with generalized epilepsy syndromes. And something has to happen to push people over that threshold, whether it's uh, severe sleep deprivation, uh, whether it's a, a mildly provoking factor, uh, like some stimulating drug, uh, for example, or some other derangement, 
or whether somebody simply uh, accumulates a, a, a tiny microvascular insults that just are enough to trigger the network into place uh, to develop the, the, the circuits necessary. And one wonders, and we talked about this before, whether she did have uh, what was essentially absence status epilepticus for a period of time. And, and this is the type of situation in which somebody can be uh, interactive to some degree. If you look at an EEG of somebody at absence status epilepticus, it's not necessarily continuous uh, generalized spike wave discharges. You'll often have bursts of spike wave discharges that occupy a large portion of the background, but not the entire thing. And so one assumes that there's some maintenance of awareness or at least alertness uh, through this. And this is why people can engage in some degree of, of complex uh, tasks. And again, if you look at older textbooks, there are reports of absence status epilepticus emerging for the first time uh, later in life. It's rare, but it's not unheard of, not unheard of. I think that's just a super case and, and really interesting. Uh, two questions. What AED did you choose? And did you guys think that the the episodes of Lost Tone with Eye Closed were absence seizures. Yeah, so uh, we gave her Capra because of her age, you know, although, you know, the classic drug for uh, childhood absence epilepsies, ethosuximide, we uh, decided to go with Capra. We also considered doing Lamotrigine. Those were kind of our two considerations, but just given the ease of loading and the side effect profile, we preferred to do um, Capra, she was followed up in the epilepsy clinic uh, several months later and had been episode free. The question about the other episodes, I think, is also a good one. Um, it's hard to say. Certainly, I think it's possible that those were, were seizures, but they were a little different of episodes and uh, certainly could have been, you know, cardiogenic or neurogenic syncope, but uh, it's unclear and we're not 100% sure. The only other interesting thing that was brought up in her follow-up notes um, that we didn't necessarily elicit inpatient was that, as I mentioned earlier, Earlier, she had these weird episodes that were diagnosed as ADHD as a young child, which were subsequently thought to probably have been short absence seizures. Those stopped when she had her first period. So around the age of 13, 14, like I mentioned, they completely abated and she was late to menarche. So that they stopped when she had her first period. And interestingly, the first episode of loss of consciousness and then these subsequent larger episodes um, happened or they started about 30 days after she fully stopped having periods. So she went through menopause and was completely um, amenorrheic about one month prior to when these episodes started. Whether or not that has anything to do with kind of what exactly happened to her, it was of novel interest, but is an interesting coincidence between the, um, so the concepts of the episodes. So interesting. Dr. Moeller, is there any evidence of hormonal changes playing a role? So there, it's it's complicated. In animal models and in animal studies, estrogen is relatively pro-epileptic or pro-seizure, and progesterone is relatively anti-seizure. In human studies, there are certainly people who have what is called catamenial epilepsy, who will have epilepsy usually around the time of menstruation when there's a dip in progesterone levels. And there is a single study about eight or 10 years ago uh, using supplemental progestin for catamenial epilepsy. And it was overall a negative trial, but women who had a huge increase in the number of their overall seizures around the time of menstruation did show a benefit as a subgroup. So, and there definitely are 
people in frequency and intensity of their seizures during those two big changes in hormonal control, menarche and, and menopause. Great. Well, that was a great case. Thank you, Chris. Just a couple of key learning points to remember. So there are really four key elements of uh, memory formation that have different anatomical correlates. So the first is registration, and that's the immediate component of memory uh, that requires uh, both frontal structures related to attention, as well as the reticular activating system uh, to maintain arousal. There's encoding, which occurs on the order of minutes and really localizes to the mesial temporal lobes in the hippocampus and the remainder of the circuit of PAPES. And recall or, or uh, retrieval, which also uh, occur on the order of minutes and probably rely on very similar structures. And then there's a longer term consolidation that's really a more diffuse process throughout the brain. In a person who is alert but has anterograde amnesia, uh, you really should be thinking about an encoding problem and localizing that to the mesial temporal lobes or the circuit of PAPES. And lastly, I think it's important to remember the phenomenon of absent status epilepticus, which can be very sneaky and present only with partial decreases in uh, alertness and interactivity and could easily be confused for something else uh, if not thought of. Uh, and it can onset actually in later adulthood in some cases. Uh, this being a rare example that we discussed today. So thank you all. Uh, thanks, Dr. Moeller, for joining us. And thanks, Lindsay and Chris, as always. And we'll see you all for the next episode.